Hey, everyone, and welcome back to the Magic Story Podcast. I'm your host, Natalie. And I'm your other host, Harless. For those of you who are just joining us today for the first time, the Magic Story Podcast recaps the fiction story behind the card game Magic the Gathering. And Natalie and I throw in our own bits of flavor text along the way. Whether you've been playing Magic for years or just discovered it yesterday, this podcast has something for you. So this season is following the set Murders at Karlov Manor. And today's episode is a recap of episode seven of the fiction story, which is titled Rot Before Recovery, and it's written by Shauna McGuire. Join us as we head into the multiverse. So a quick recap of what happened last episode. We followed Kaya and Kellen as they were heading back to the agency after visiting Vitugazi, and they were attacked by some random cloaked people who said nothing. And after Kaya and Kellen tried to question them after after kind of defeating them on the streets, they turned themselves into moths. And the weird thing about these remains of their would-be attackers is that there was, like, white fur in in the, the mossy remains that was left of them. So there are a lot of questions going on. And so Kaya and Kellen returned to the agency to report to Ezram what they had seen so far and to report what they had read in the Guild Pact at Vitugazi. And this is where Ezram reveals the Azorius had apprehended Tessa's killer. And it turns out that this killer is just a random citizen who has no memory of going into Tessa's office and murdering her. So there's a pattern forming here where the attackers have no recollection of what they're doing. And just as they are talking about all of this, Aurelia storms into the office and throws Massacre Girl onto, like, before them and saying, Massacre Girl tried to murder her. And Aurelia is... To say she's furious is a little bit of an understatement. She essentially threatens, if they don't solve this case in the next 24 hours, quote, heads will roll. So the stakes are pretty high here for them to figure out what is going on. Meanwhile, with Atrada and Proft, they had gone into, they were seeking the help of one of Prof's, is it friends, Kylox. And Kylox could potentially help solve the mystery behind this powder su- substance that they had found in Atrada's hideout. But it turns out that Kylox's workshop is in complete shambles. And so they go and try and find Kylox down in the boiler pits. They do find Kylox, but Kylox isn't willing to help them. And just as they're trying to convince Kylox to help them out, a bunch of goblins come in and kidnap Kylox, and Atrada and Proft have to follow this, this group of goblins with Kylox with them through the boiler pits, and it leads them all into Kranko's domain. And Kranko is trying to look out for his own skin. He's worried that he's kind of next. He's been hearing about these murderers. And Kylox honestly has no context really behind the murders. He really doesn't have any idea as to how how to help Cranko or Proft. And just as Proft has helped 
Kylox like kind of be free from these goblins. Another assassin bashes in through the windows and charges for Cranko, but unfortunately Kylox is in the way and uh, is is killed in the process. Um, and so we had left off last episode with kind of Etrata and Proft realizing that these attackers, A, have no recollection of, of what's going on to them. They're kind of being brainwashed almost to do this. And B, they're just regular citizens. They're not professional hired assassins in a lot of cases. And and this guy that had been sent to kill Cranko was just, you know, was on his way to the florists. He was, you know, he had no, he had no connection with Cranko whatsoever. So this mystery is, is just getting more and more complicated as we go. Now, today's episode opens with Kellen and Kaya. They're in Kellen's alcove, and I say alcove because it's not really an office so much as a, quote, semi-partitioned little corner of the main floor where room had been made for a desk, a rickety file cabinet, and a small brass machine on a perfectly sized pedestal. And Kellen is using his own private projector to go over the information so far. And Kellen explains to Kaya that everything is considered information until proven to be evidence. And at this point, Kaya is really impressed with the agency. They're very organized. They have these evidence capsules. They have these projectors. They don't consider everything to be evidence. And she's just really impressed. And as they are going over the information, Kellen tells Kaya that the white fur found on their attackers from last episode just doesn't match up with Rakdos being behind this. And Kaya reveals that she doesn't think it is Rakdos. And I'll read this from the story. It feels like Judith wants us looking at her parent for some reason. And I can come up with half a dozen reasons she'd want us to do that. But this isn't his style. Yes, killing Tessa and Zagana causes a lot of chaos and instability. She paused, swallowing. She knew she was right. Dismissing Tessa's death so casually still burned. But it won't throw the city into freefall. It won't cause riots in the streets. Rakdos would want to see the bodies clogging the gutters if he'd stirred himself for something like this. And as Kaya is explaining to Kellen that she's still not sure who is behind this, just maybe not Judith, an alarm blares in the agency. And it's the evidence locker alarm, which means someone has broken into, or out of, the locker. So the two of them run to the evidence locker to find the room in complete shambles. And before they can figure out exactly what's happening... A roar overtakes the room. And Natalie, can you just read this next part from the story? Yeah, I love this part. The roar came again, and the smoke parted as its occupant lunged forward, massive, spatulate front paws slamming into the floor. One of the screams cut off abruptly as a paw landed on the screamer, presumably smashing them flat. Each paw was tipped in a daggered claw easily longer than Kaya was tall tapering to a wicked point. The beast that had done all this damage swung around, sniffing at the air. Its nose was a star-shaped flower burst of fleshy tendrils. The whole thing resembled nothing so much as a mole twice the size of an adult troll, flesh etched with runic lines that gleamed green with power. And this is Anzrag, the gruel god that had been detained by the agency that was mentioned in the first episode of this season. And Ansrag is a harvest god for gruel, but he's also known as the Rampage Mole. And that may sound familiar because Ansrag's Rampage is a sorcery card in Murders at Carlove Manor. 
The card is a rare and features the massive mole among the rubble of the agency's evidence locker. And Ansrag is massive with glowing green eyes as well as glowing symbols on his shoulders. And he's so big that he has a necklace of human skulls that just look like beads around his huge neck. Like that's how big he is. And probably most unique to his design is what Natalie just mentioned, which is the starburst-shaped tendril on his snout. So imagine just like this pink little like multi, it's almost like a flower that that's like come out of his mouth, out of his snout. And it's just like sticking out right in front of his face. Yeah. And it really like Ansrag is definitely a, a mole. He's terrifying, but obviously Kaya is not going to be afraid of the rampage mole. She charges at Ansrag, her daggers finding purchase in that starburst tendril, while Kellen slashes at his legs. None of this is enough to actually damage the god, but they sure have gotten his attention. Suddenly, another roar joins the fight. It's Ezram. Ezram and his mount, wings fully spread, present a clear challenge to Ansrag, who shakes Kaya off. Kellen is on the ground to catch Kaya, and she whispers to him to get another evidence capsule. And Kellen takes off to get the evidence capsule, which he hands to Kaya. And I'll read this next part from the story. Ansrag turned, growling under his breath as Kaya got close. Kaya took a breath and phased out, turning intangible just before Ansrag's paw passed through her body, claws swiping harmlessly at nothing. The god was still trying to figure out what had happened, standing in baffled puzzlement, when Kaya turned solid again and pressed the button. The capsule chimed, an incongruously pleasant sound, before expanding into a massive bubble, trapping Ansrag inside. Okay, that was intense. Like, that was such an intense little battle that came out of absolutely nowhere. But okay, so as the dust settles, Agris Koss beckons Kaya and Kellen over. And he tells them that something just is bugging him, and he really wants to go somewhere that he believes will provide some answers. And he then tells her that he has to go alone because this place that he's going is not safe for humans. Remember, Agris is a ghost. And Kaya says she'll see him when he gets back and he turns to leave. Then we switch perspectives to Etrada and Alquist Proft, who are headed to the 6th Precinct in Golgari territory. And here's how that's described in the story. The air here was warm and fragrant, although it didn't stink like the boiler pits. Instead, the air had the ripe richness of healthy compost, the earthy weightiness of mushrooms. It smelled like a growing world. Decay, yes, but life as well. Two things without which all of Ravnica would surely fall. That sounds exactly how I think Golgari territory should, like, should smell. Right? Yeah, yeah. Like, the the earthiness of mushrooms, I, that, that immediately, yeah. like, it, like, enacted my senses. I, I, I just could picture it so easily. That is so Golgari. And that's... Why we love Seanan so freaking yep. much. Yep. Seanan is Bravo. such a good writer. She brings us so many just little details about the world that fill it out, whether that's a sight, a smell, a sound. It's just amazing how filled out the world seems when Seanan writes about it. So anyway, I'm just yeah. going to fangirl for a second here. No, back I, to you, I, <laughs> no I'm going to echo that. I, I think back to our, our season with Phyrexia All Will Be One and Seanan also wrote those stories. And I, I remember experiencing the dross pits um, 
along in in New Phyrexia, um, because of the way Shannon described the dross pits. I was just right there, and, yeah. and could, I can smell it. I could taste it. It just it was so alive because uh because of the writing. So yep, yeah, I'm just I'm I'm fangirling too. <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, anyway, it's, um, it's extra impressive because these stories are so short, right? Like anybody can put that flavor into an epic multi-story novel but these stories are so compact and shannon still manages to give us these details about the world in ways that don't break away from the story that don't like pull you out of the narrative but in fact just pull you in they beckon you into the story yeah absolutely (laughs) um anyway we got off on a tangent back to the story (laughs) another tangent brought to you by harless and natalie (laughs) yeah our specialty all right so back in Golgari territory, Proft and Atrada eventually reach a door that Alquist just knocks on. When no one answered, Proft opens the door and enters, quote, a large cavern lined with the crumbling ruins of some ancient guild hall. There were no fires, but there was light provided by larger clusters of those same glowing mushrooms. At the center of the cavern is an elf woman dressed in layered leather, topped with tatters that emulated spiderwebs. Her face was painted with a white spider's head mask, the lines gleaming stark against her dark skin. And this is Izoni, and Izoni immediately tells Proft that she had nothing to do with the murders. Do you remember the spider that Atrada was watching in her cell when Proft went to set her free? Yeah, we've seen them one other time, too. Well, it turns out that all the spiders that we have seen in this entire season actually belong to Azoni. And Prof tells her, I saw your spiders in the tunnels and in Atrada's cell. If you were responsible for this, more people would be dead and I'd never have seen your eyes. You're more subtle than that. Oh, Prof is good, but he knows she wasn't responsible. The real reason they're here is to see if she can tell them what the mysterious powder from Atrada's room is actually comprised of. Remember, they didn't get a chance to solve it because Kylox died last episode. So Izoni tips the powder into her bare hand because she's completely immune to poisons, which is a really cool power to have, and tells Atrada and Proft that it is a natural substance, but it isn't like anything she's ever seen on Ravnica before, and she knows all the natural substances on the plane. As they wrap up their conversation, Proft sees someone watching them. It's a hooded figure, and he can't make out the face. But when the figure takes off running, Proft follows. And as Proft reaches out, nearly able to grab hold of the mysterious figure's cloak, he is hit over the head and rendered unconscious. Proft, my goodness, watch where you're going. This is the second time. He's no kidding. I think he's just curious by nature, though. Yes, I was going to say that. I think he's just like, I'm going to run headfirst into this because I got to know the answer. And he doesn't think about what that could mean for his own (laughs) physical well-being. Yeah, yeah. It's like consequences second, must find out answer first. That's just so Alquist. 100%. Yes. Okay, so from here, we switch over to Agris Koss in his mysterious expedition to somewhere that only ghosts are safe. Lots of mystery in this set. So I'm going to read this directly from the story. Rick's Mahdi cast a long shadow, even in the Undercity. Agris Koss had always hated this place when he was alive. He truly wished he didn't feel compelled to visit now that he was dead. 
but the evidence. Too much pointed to Rakdos without forming a full and coherent picture. The attack by Massacre Girl had been too sloppy. Judith had been too eager to point Kaya and Kellen at her own Perrin. None of this made sense. There was one thing he could do to contribute to the investigation that no one else could do, and he reminded himself of that as he passed through the walls of Rixmati, descending through the Rakdos Guild Hall toward the Great Lava Pit where Rakdos himself dwelt. And this is the point in the story where I went, wait, what? Because he's going to see Rakdos? Like, the god? Yeah, it seems like he's doing exactly that. And he approaches the god, who is asleep and covered in dust. So Rakdos isn't behind this. But as he does so... I don't like that. Oh no. Out of nowhere, wrapping around his wrists and ankles, holding him down. A sudden, searing pain swept over him. He fell to his knees, fighting to look up and see what had attacked him, but collapsed as the pain grew more intense. And then, who other than Judith steps out of the shadows? And, Harless, will you read this next part from the story? Then, with a flash of red and delight, he vanished, and Judith stepped out of the shadows, a crystal skull in her hands, smirking at the place where he had been. Now, now, darling, she said, caressing the skull. Can't have you spoiling all my fun when I'm so close to getting what I really want. She raised the skull to her face, smirk becoming a smile as she saw the small figure of Agar's Koss screaming inside, wrapped tight in chains of smoke. Rakdo sleeps now because he wishes to, but it would be a small matter for the other guilds to bind him in dreamless slumber. If I could only convince them that his desires had become a danger, she said sweetly. Our guild needs new leadership, a dramatic change of scene. All I need to do is throw enough clues in front of those amateur crime chasers, and this ends with me at center stage. You're not a part of my script, little spirit. You'll stay where I put you. She turned and sauntered away from the lava pit, leaving the demon she ostensibly served to slumber. Okay, so Judith isn't behind the murders, but she's playing her own game to take advantage of the chaos. That's just so Rakdos. It's so Judith, right? Like, it's it's absolutely so Rakdos. Like, chaos is where they thrive. So, she, of course, she's taking advantage of it. But from here, we switch back to Proft, who is waking up after being hit over the head. But he is not waking up where he fell. He is in his own mind palace, which is a blue and white ornate room filled with books, almost like a library. And Proft himself is in awe that he's managed to wake inside a physical representation of his own mind palace when he himself hadn't consciously constructed it. And he's not alone in his mind palace. A hooded figure rummages through the books and scrolls along the walls, face still obscured. And Proft asks what this person is doing here. They weren't invited. And how did they even get inside of his mind palace to begin with? The cloaked figure just says that he came here to see the Mind Palace for himself, and calls it very impressive. Proft deduces that this figure's powers of suggestion must be incredibly powerful for him to manage his way inside of his Mind Palace like this, and asks if this person is the killer. The hooded figure responds, Sadly, my friend, I'm not the one you're looking for. And then the figure steals a folder from one of the desk drawers. I'm merely passing through, the figure says. Ravnica is a waypoint, not a destination. But your contributions will be remembered. 
and I'll see you're rewarded in some way when the time comes. And Proft, about to protest about the theft of intellectual property, isn't able to stop the Mind Palace from shattering right at that moment. Proft wakes once more in Azoni's chamber, Atrada slapping him awake. And Atrada looks worried. She explains that she feared the influence that had taken the minds of the other killers had taken him as well. But Proft is perfectly okay. I would even describe his mood as chipper. And he says that unconsciousness is marvelous for organizing the thoughts. And they thank Azoni for her help. And she says they should return to the sunlit realms. As in, get out of here, you're dismissed. <laughs> and here we're back with Kaya and Kellen waiting at the agency for Agra's costs to return. Kaya is pointing out that he should have been back by now. So they go to speak with Ezram. And they aren't the only ones observing the fact that Agris Koss never came back from Rakdos. Aurelia storms into the office in her mighty fury. Remember when she threatened that heads will roll? Well, she's had enough. She declares her Boros Legion is marching to war against the cult of Rakdos. And Kaya knows this means the other guilds will soon follow. Ravnica will be at war with itself. And as Kaya goes to leave Ezram's office, a mysterious messenger kind of approaches her and hands her a slip of paper from someone unknown that tells her to meet at the Karlov Cathedral, alone. The Karlov Cathedral is decked out for Tase's funeral, which is going to be happening soon. The Orzov take their funerals very seriously, and Kaya is still hoping Tase's spirit will return and show herself to help solve this mystery specifically to tell her about the Phyrexian note that Kaya is still carrying around in her own pocket. But inside the cathedral to meet her is not Tessa. It's Atrada and Aquas Proft. And Proft explains to Kaya the meaning behind working with Atrada, and seeing they're all working on the same case, Kaya agrees to hear them out. Then Proft catches Kaya up on all the clues they'd been investigating, the powder and the assassins. And then Kaya tells Proft everything from her perspective, she tells him everything from the Phyrexian note in Tase's office she found, which is a big trust moment here for her to trust anyone with that information. So good job, Kaya. To visiting Judith and the Guild Pact, to going to Bidugazi, and then being attacked by people who turned into moss and had fur on their remains. Oh, and that Aurelia is threatening war. And just as Kaya relays all of this, well, I'm going to read what Prof does next. Prof said nothing. Kaya turned to look at him. He was staring off into space with an expression she would have called blank, if not for the satisfaction creeping around the edges. He looked like a man who had just been handed a glorious and unexpected gift, and intended to savor it. Detective, are you alright? Proft rose. Itrada, who was becoming attuned to his signals, moved to join them. I know who's responsible for this, said Proft. All of this. And I can prove it. But I need you to keep Atrada's whereabouts to yourself and to arrange a little gathering for me before I can explain. Kaya stared at him. Atrada shrugged. You get used to it, she said. And that's how we end, end the episode. That's the end. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Okay, so Alquist thinks he knows who did it based on all the information that Kaya has just given him. So basically, she had some pieces of the puzzle that he didn't have, right? And now he has a much clearer picture. And yeah, and and I can't I wait to figure out. I'm like, wait, who he what? Did it? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. like tell we're me left, more. We're left like, wait, what is it that he figured out? Like, all of this feels like completely random events. I haven't been able to yeah. even piece together 
what Proft suddenly saw? Like what what came together? How did Proft solve it? So I like I I think I think this case is just gonna be cracked open here soon. I think you're right. Absolutely. There are so many ways to interact with this set right now. Murders at Carlov Manor, the magic set is out right now. So you can see all these characters on cards. You can also listen to the full audiobooks, also released on our podcast platforms. And you can read up on today's story as well as many more at mtgstory.com. So I guess we're going to find out how this case cracks open in our next episode. But until then, have, have a magical, magical day. day.